Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. I'm so excited about today's guests. I had an incredible conversation with award-winning photographers Paul Nicklin and Christina Mittermeier. They are a husband-wife team who collectively have about 10 million followers on Instagram. Some of you may follow them already for their arresting, powerful, incredible images of wildlife around the world at the far reaches of the globe, the Arctic, the Antarctic, underwater, really incredible imagery. They also happen to be outspoken conservationists. Paul and Christina have co-founded an organization called Sea Legacy, and having captured the images of wildlife and our Earth changing these last couple decades, they see the impact that climate change is having on wildlife and especially our oceans. So we're making a point of releasing this interview around World Ocean Day. As many of you know, when you look at a uh, map of the world, the world is mostly ocean and the oceans support life here on Earth. But through pollution, through change, it is getting to the point where it's no longer supporting us like it once could. So I spoke to Paul and Christina in this interview about the reality of climate change, what they have witnessed close up traveling around the world, what they're seeing through their camera lenses in the North Pole, the Antarctic, deep underwater. I learned a lot of fascinating things in this podcast, including how important whales are as allies in the fight against climate change. Literally, they help take more CO2 out of the atmosphere through their actions, literally what they eat and then what eventually comes out. They will explain the whale poop cycle and what it means for CO2. Please stay tuned for that. We also, of course, beyond climate change, talk about photography and how they get up close with some of the biggest scariest creatures on earth and how they keep their calm uh, next to the polar bears, next to the whales, next to sharks. So I think you'll find this conversation equal parts educational, inspirational, interesting, and informative. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one. It went early up on the members-only feed a couple of weeks ago, and you will have access to extra content over on the podcast as well as the members-only Instagram account. By joining Mo News Premium, it's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism, and added plus is the access to the extra content on the podcast, the Instagram feed. You help us do what we do and also expand what we're doing. You can become a Mo News Premium member for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months we're offering right now for the annual package. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. I'm so grateful to everyone who's already joined Mo News Premium. There's so many exciting things we're rolling out to members right now. So again, if you want to join over there and support what we're doing here, you can do that over at mo.news slash premium. All right, with that said, here's today's conversation. So it is a true pleasure right now to be welcoming Christina Mittermeier and Paul Nicklin, both are acclaimed award-winning photographers, conservationists. Paul is a marine biologist who grew up in the Arctic Circle. Christina is originally from Mexico. She tells me, though, that she has Mexican, American, and Canadian passports. Uh, collectively, they have more than 9 million followers on Instagram, uh, people who come to their accounts to learn more about the world around us, the earth, uh, beautiful photos from the far reaches of this planet. Honestly, as you're listening to this podcast, you might want to pull up their accounts. They are at MITTY, at M-I-T-T-Y, and at Paul Nicklin, Paul N-I-C-K-L-E-N, as you're listening to see their incredible work. They're the co-founders of an organization called Sea Legacy, telling the visual story of our biodiversity, of our ocean, the goal to help educate, increase awareness, uh, and we'll talk about how we can all have an impact. Christina, Paul, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Moshe. It's great to be here. Mr. Wanunu, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you. 
Christina has told me before this podcast she wants to go by Mitty. She goes by Mitty, so we're calling her Mitty and Paul on this podcast. I want to begin today, we'll talk about our optimism about what can be done. But the state of play, I'm a news person and I see the headlines and it seems like there's a daily digest of concerning headlines about the state of our planet, the loss of coral reef, the warming Arctic, dire predictions about what's going on. Uh, Mitty, I want to begin with you. Uh, how would you characterize the state of things as we speak here in the spring of 2023? Well, I don't want to be the doomsayer, but it is um, it is dire, uh, Mush. It's, uh, scientists are telling us that by 2027, which is in just three, four years, we're going to be reaching the proverbial one and a half degrees Celsius or 2.7 degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature, which you know, scientists are telling us it's going to be catastrophic for humanity. It's going to bring many more droughts, hurricanes, many more floods. It just becomes a very difficult to manage situation. So I think we still have a small window of opportunity to do everything we can to try to stay away from that one and a half degree increase. So explain why to many people, one and a half degrees seems pretty insignificant, right? One and a half Celsius, 2.7 Fahrenheit, if, uh, if I go out and it's 80 degrees or it's 82 degrees, that doesn't seem to make much difference in my life. But explain why that uh, is so important when it comes to our planet. I think it's it's wonderful that we've not wonderful, but it's it's both terrifying and a good opportunity when you see moments in time when you get these little spikes to, to see what happens, spikes in temperature. And six years ago, we were on assignment for National Geographic. They pulled me off the middle of a shoot and said, you must go focus on the blob. And that was that body of water in the Pacific Ocean, that went, an area of water that went from Mexico up all the way to the coast of the United States, off of British Columbia, and up into Alaska. And it was water that warmed several degrees Fahrenheit. And what would happen when water warms several degrees Fahrenheit in the, in the Pacific Ocean? Well, we saw millions, tens of millions of seabirds die. We saw hundreds of whales die. We, I was up in Alaska photographing hundreds of sea otters that were dying from para paralytic shellfish poisoning from that warming temperature. There was an algae bloom and you, you're watching these sea otters by the hundreds take their last breath. And, you know, and, and that's just it. People don't, we we're a species with a very short memory. You know, when there is a hurricane, a disaster, when we were, you know, when we were sitting there and in, in photographing and filming post hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas to look at places where over a thousand people died uh, from these the biggest hurricanes recorded in history, parking himself, getting bigger and moving slower. These are just slight shifts in temperature, but what comes with it is is just absolutely catastrophic and devastating. My biggest fear is that we're going to go from a species that ignores and it's out of sight, out of mind. And when we finally wake up to what 1.5 really looks like, it's going to be too late. We're going to have that shift. There's not going to be that middle ground where we say, oh, that was our moment to act. That was our moment of opportunity. That's where we could have made a difference. But you know what? We, you know, it's, it's, I keep talking about my favorite movie right now is um, Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio because that, you know, that analogy of that asteroid coming to Earth. And we see this all the time where we'll be on stage talking about 1.5. What does it look like? This is what 2027 is going to look like. And, you know, the host will say, wow, I hope that asteroid hits my ex-wife's house. Ha, ha, ha. You know, it's kind of like this this disconnect that we have and you're right we we are always constantly trying to make that connection to how serious this is but i think mo, mo if i may you know the the most important thing about this is that some of the changes that are already happening are 
irreversible. That means they cannot, we, we cannot turn the clock back to make things, to undo the damage. Coral reefs, you know, we've already lost over 60, 70% of the coral reefs. And it's not something that you just replant and get the whole ecosystem back. You know, as hard as some organizations are trying to hold off the damage, it takes thousands, millions of years to build an ecosystem like a kelp forest or like a coral reef. And we need these ecosystems. You know, imagine that you're flying in an airplane and you're seeing knots and bolts flying out the window. You know, you would be really worried. <laughs> we should be very worried. Translate for me the impact, you know, these things like coral reefs and, and biodiversity in the oceans and um, what that means for someone who lives in Chicago or Nebraska. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the role of the ocean in our global ecosystem. The only reason that life exists on Earth and we know of no other planet that holds life is because this planet has a living ocean and it is the right temperature and the ocean absorbs already 25% of carbon emissions and has been doing it for a long time. You know, photosynthesis in the phytoplankton helps maintain the carbon balance on planet Earth. Um, in addition, that same phytoplankton, along with other uh, habitats like seagrass and mangroves, produce 50% of the oxygen we breathe. Imagine if we lost 50% of the oxygen. You know, how would you, how would you like to hold your breath half the time? <laughs> um, and on top of that, the ocean holds 80% of the biodiversity on the planet, and three and a half billion people depend on ocean protein for their survival. It's a pretty important ecosystem. Also regulates global climate. I mean, when you think about the polar regions, for example, and that's really what I've been specializing for, mostly for National Geographic for the last 20 years uh, on climate change issues. But when you see people, people say, oh, it's just we're losing ice, what does that mean if we just lose ice? Well, when you look at sea ice, for example, um, sea ice is basically like an inverted garden. So you have in the spring, the sun returns to the polar regions, you get photosynthesis, you get algae and phytoplankton growing underneath that ice, then you get zooplankton, the amphipods, the copepods. And then in Antarctica, you get the krill. And the krill is almost equal to the biomass of humans on Earth. I mean, there's just such a great biomass, but all of these ecosystems need to have ice as the foundation of their substrate to start their life cycle. And from there, you get the cod, the polar cod in Antarctica, you get the ice fish, and then you get the, the ring seals, the bearded seals, the harp seals, all the polar cod, all the fish, all of this life, the narwhals, the belugas, and at the top of the food chain, you have polar bears. And when they say, scientists are saying, we're going to lose polar bears in the next 100 years due to loss of sea ice, that means we're losing this entire ecosystem, the whole ecosystem is going to collapse. Sure, maybe a couple of species might thrive, but um, it's, it's, and then all of a sudden, then you've got the Gulf Stream, you've got not just the Gulf Stream, but you've got the current. But the parts that are invisible, that are terrifying, you know, these input of fresh water into deep sea currents, because, you know, we're basically changing the chemistry and the physics of how our planet works. And we don't understand the consequences fully, but it's not going to be pretty for humans or for wildlife because we are pretty fragile. You know, we, we can only survive in a very small range of temperature and wonderful climate conditions, and we're losing them. Right. While this planet has fluctuated over billions of years, humans have only been around for the very last part of it. While we've had um, this sort of equilibrium. The comfy part. The most comfortable part in Earth's history, after several billion years of getting it together, uh, has been our part. And that's changing. And, and maybe what you're talking about there is this the sea ice melting, that's adding fresh water into the salt water, and that's changing the dynamic of the ocean there. 
But it's fascinating because, you know, these are the far reaches of the planet. These are areas of the planet that most people will never get to, um, but are able to uh, see because of people like you who head up there. Uh, Paul, you grew up there in the Arctic Circle, and I, I, I had the good fortune of seeing a presentation you did uh, a bit ago in New York talking about um, growing up in the Arctic Circle. Uh, talk to me about, even, even in your lifetime, the evolution that you've seen up there from childhood uh, to when you return there now uh, to continue your photography. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's when you grew up with the Inuit, you know, back then as a kid, you know, we had no telephone, no radio, no television. So I spent all my time outside with the Inuit. And that is to see the true masters of their environment, just like how Christina's worked in the Amazon with the indigenous tribe there and to see how connected they are, how they can, you know, it's just, it's mind boggling to see how connected they are to that world. And then their world is consistent. The ice forms every year in a certain way. It forms around a certain time. The ice cracks break up every year. Well, now they say they don't even know where they're living anymore. The ice is disappearing weeks to months earlier. It's thinner. It's rotten. They're not able to access their hunting grounds. Christina and I were working in Connacht, Greenland. And historically, you think about how the Inuit from Greenland and the Inuit from Baffin Island would share genetics between their us their huskies to build the super dog that was the biggest engine and workhorse of the Arctic. Um, they they for the last twenty five years have not been able to access each other because of open water that is now does not freeze between you know so you're seeing changes absolutely everywhere. So just to pause there, uh, there was a time where during winter there'd be a major freeze and you'd have ice for a good portion of the year. And that doesn't exist anymore. An ice bridge. Yeah. And then you think of the ice bridge, for example, now that there's no ice, I mean, sort of that water's open all year round. There's no, there's no ice there at all. Um, and then, you know, you have scientists talking about, you know, Greenland melting. We see all the ice caps melting. When we're in Antarctica working down there filming polo, uh, penguins, we've been working with a guy by the name of Dion Ponce, who was actually conceived and born in Antarctica. Uh, he's been there every year for his 45 years of his life. And he said when we were there, saying he had never seen pouring rain in Antarctica before, where all the penguins were covered in mud and their downy feathers and they're dying. He said, this is, this is unprecedented. So you, I see it through the eyes of the people, the Inuit. I see it through the eyes of the scientists. We see it with our own eyes. But this change is happening dramatically. And, and for, again, people in New York, um, you know, they say if Antarctica melts and Greenland melts, and this is the first time in recorded history that the entire ice cap of Greenland is melting, um, that that sea levels will rise 200 feet. So what is that going to mean for coastal communities around the entire world? It's going to change the world completely as we know it. New York, uh, where are you? I mean, you're probably going to be underwater. I'm in Brooklyn, and I'm probably, you know, within a quarter mile of the of the East River here. Yeah, well, I would be 178 feet underwater here. So it's a... Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously these are all signs that we're heading in the wrong direction. And you talk about, you know, millions of years of, of cyclical nature of climate change. You know, when you go to NASA and look at the data yourself, you look at I was in Dome C on the Antarctic ice cap photographing the Italians and the Russians and the Americans digging ice cores miles deep into the ice cap of Antarctica, looking at the ice core samples, looking at the climate data, how much CO2 was in the atmosphere over their data that they can go back has gone back now 800,000 years and 100% it is a very cyclical cycle. Up and it goes up and down the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, but it never, 
you know, it never got above a certain point. And then you used to look right there at the beginning of the industrial revolution and it just blows off the chart like a big hockey stick. Go look at it yourself. Just type in climate data uh, on the NASA website and it will blow your mind and it'll scare you um, to see that the trajectory that we're on. The real problem is that a lot of people think that this is going to be like an event, you know? Oh, well, you know, we're screwed and we're going to die. It's going to be a hundred years that are going to be pretty miserable for humanity unless we act and do something. Because with all of these disasters and catastrophes, the economy becomes destabilized, populations become destabilized. You're starting to see millions of people become refugees. And of course, we don't want them to come to our country. But <laughs> So this whole idea of climate refugees, that due to the changes in our planet, that, you know, for years we've known refugees because of drought or war or, you know, various individual events. Yeah. Now we're creating climate refugees from certain places. Yeah. Yeah. And you see it so clearly. You know, I was just in the Omo Valley of Ethiopia visiting with some of the most remote and resilient tribes that have lived in these desert conditions for generations and generations. But nobody can live without water forever. You know, and at some point those people have to move and they end up living in the cities. And all of these destabilizes politics, economics. It disrupts the way that we live. And you know what, Mosh? The planet will shake us off, you know. Humans may disappear, wildlife may disappear, planet Earth will continue, it will continue to evolve. Maybe in a million years we'll see a different group of species, animals that had never lived before. Nature is amazing. But while this is happening, it's gonna be horrific and not comfortable and you know, not not fun. So why don't we do something about it? I'm a solutions oriented person. Yeah, I you know, you guys both are photographers, and I'm curious as to how your passion for photography and seeing the world, how it translated, what, when was the turning point for uh, each of you when it came to, um, wait, I'm not just a photographer. There's a, there's a larger thing I need to focus on here. There's a larger conservation uh, of the planet that I, I need to get involved with. It's very interesting, uh, Mosh, because I was, you know, you come up through the ranks of National Geographic and you it's like being in the NFL, but there's only one team and like it doesn't get any better than shooting for National Geographic. They're sending you around the world shooting incredibly important assignments. And it's when I met Christina in 2008 and I'd, I'd have heard her name before that because Christina comes from a, a very strict, serious conservation back background. And she said, you know, she came out in the 2004 and said, our planet's in trouble. You guys are on the front lines. You guys are more than just journalists for National Geographic. You guys were storytellers. You were conservationists. You were part of the story. And I actually resisted her in the beginning. I'm like, how dare you tell me that I'm not just a journalist? I mean, there's no higher badge of honor in our profession than being a journalist that's showing the good with the bad, unbiased journalism, pure and honest. Right. And then I started to look around like, she's right. You know, like the industry has billions of dollars for marketing and promoting, you know, like Shell Oil, how much money can they put into promoting their product and putting all, all these clean energy ads. And, you know, here we are underfunded, starving, running around in tie-dye t-shirts saying, you know, take care of the earth. And and it was at that moment, I'm like, she's right. And so in conjunction with doing assignments for Geographic, we started to go off and do conservation-driven storytelling under the guidance of Christina. And we were having conservation wins where actually I was like, this felt really good. Like having an article in National Geographic is great, but seeing the follow up and the follow through and actually being part of a community that's that's winning and, and speaking out and protecting and, you know, whether it's marine protected areas or chasing big oil off the coast of British Columbia, whatever it is, um, 
so under Christina's leadership, just it felt great to win. And there's no better feeling now. And that was when 2014, we started to, you know, have, a, you know, I went kicking and screaming into social media, but very quickly got a first, my first million followers and then two and then three and four million. I'm like, wait a minute. We actually, rather than publishing a National Geographic once a year, once every two years, which is great, but we can now publish every day on stories that we believe on on our own social media channels. So that's why collectively we have over 10 million now and we wish it was... 500 million. You know, we just, we need a bigger microphone to get people to wake up about this planet. Social media gets a, a bum rap, deservedly so, uh, for the impact that it's had. At the same time, we would not, the three of us would not be speaking today if it wasn't for social media. Um, what is, you know, you guys shot for National Geographic, the biggest magazines in the world, etc. What have you learned in the social media age about your ability to tell stories and have impact? Well, I think in 2012, um, when we were just coming up with this idea of um, maybe National Geographic is not a big enough microphone for us and Instagram was just starting to happen, I think there were a few years there that we believed that we could tell these stories and really reach a global audience and have a conversation directly with our followers. And then, of course, you know, Meta Zuckerberg decided that, that no, you know, they'll decide who gets to see your content. Yeah, they keep the algorithm locked up. Yeah. Yeah, the, the illusion has died a little bit. So, uh, you know, as communicators, we need to go back to other media, to podcasts, to earn media, to in presentations, live presentations, what we call ocean diplomacy, just getting up on a stage the old fashioned way and reaching a thousand people at a time because social media is no longer what we thought it was going to be. And that's a shame. You know, there was a moment there. When it comes to Paul spoke a bit about uh, what's going on in the Arctic, especially um, Mitty, any recent assignments you've been on where you're witnessing um, the the impact of the the changing climate on wildlife and 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 of course on 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 human beings as well? You know, the the thing that strikes me the most, Moshe, is just how little we know about how planet Earth works. You hear Elon talk about going to Mars all the time. And if you were to be invited on his spaceship to move out of planet Earth, you would get a pretty serious briefing when you boarded his spaceship. And yet, you know, here we are on little spaceship planet Earth. This is our spaceship carrying us across the universe all alone. And, you know, we survive on what we know. And it turns out we know very little. If you were to open the hood of our spaceship planet, it would be all salt water. It'd be the ocean because that's the engine that keeps life on Earth. And, and we don't know how it works. So you go to a place like the Bahamas and you realize that these reefs that people used to talk about are no longer there. We dove all over the Bahamas. We spent a year diving there and most of the reefs are in really bad shape. And you think, is it, is it the warm water? Is it sediments from the shore? You know, it turns out that species are missing. It's not just fishing, it's disease that's coming up in the ocean. And we know so little about the biodiversity and how it works that we don't even understand how the disappearance of one animal causes a cascading effect that has tremendous consequences for the entire habitat. And we carry on as if we, you know, as if Earth was indestructible, but it isn't. So we need to do everything we can. But just think about how beautiful it would be to move to Mars. I mean, to, to be to travel that distance and go there and live under a glass bubble. And if you go outside, you're instantly dead. It's 
all one color. The red would be beautiful for about five minutes, and then you'd be looking for another color. Um, I've seen the Matt Damon movie. I thought he did a pretty good job. He of, did a uh, great job on that film. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, here we are, this incredibly lush, rich, beautiful planet that we live on that is, you know, four billion years of arriving at a point that it just wants to keep everything alive. You know, it's a beautiful, evolved, fantastic ecosystem. It's the food we eat, the air we breathe, and and somehow we we know more about space than we do our own planet. And um, it's just, it's it's scary and shocking. But, you know, I, I have to be, you know, for some positive news, Moshe, this has been pretty negative. And- yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to turn the conversation here. But thank you, Paul, for <laughs> Yeah, making it positive. You yeah. know, I, I just think that, you know, even on stage with National Geographic 20 years ago, when I was seeing first signs of climate change and I was shooting assignments for them and, and you know, so even the scientists are like, we know something is up. We looked at the, even the data from the Russian submarines that the waters warmed X, you know, that the ice is half as thick as it used to be in the 60s and 70s. All that stuff was coming out. And I was sort of like trying to talk about it on stage and even National Geographic, you know, which again has integrity, but they're like, quit upsetting our audience. Don't talk about climate change too much. You know, we, we want to keep this light and entertaining. And I'm like, you know, so at least nowadays, you know, instead of being a freak for bringing up the word climate change, you'd be a freak for not mentioning it. The fact is that we're all talking about it. We're all aware of it, whether you're Republican, Democrat, you know, we want to, don't want to get too deep into politics here, but whoever you are, the world is aware. And, and then if people are, you know, it, and I don't blame people for not wanting to believe in it or wanting to talk about it because, you know, it sucks to care and it's stressful to care and it's worrisome. And, um, you know, but we have no choice. So what are the things that are keeping us from really shifting, you know, and it is inertia. It, like Paul is saying, you know, it sucks to have to change everything that you know. Well, oh I, God, I, I have to buy a different car. Well, I will say, Mitty, for many people, it's the bottom line. Like economically, they feel that and like, and, uh, and the system. Yeah, yeah no, of they, that ultimately. Wait, my gas prices have gone up a, a dollar. Why can't we drill more? Uh, why can't we allow the drilling in X Y? Yeah. So, so to the counter here, to the people who say, like, listen, I love planet Earth. I think we'll figure it out. We figure everything out. Uh, but it seems <laughs> like um, some of the things you want to do are going to make my bills in a time of inflation even more expensive. Yeah, so it's a very selfish system of values that puts personal profit over common good and, you know, survival of our species. And we're all going to pay the price for that. But I'm also seeing a tremendous change in consciousness because I'm going to say the majority of people are really worried. Majority of people want to do something. And we would all love for this transition to happen without us having to pay more for our fuel or whatever, right? It's going to be expensive and it's going to be painful. And yet it has to be done because we know that if we keep going on this same business as usual, um, you know, it's not going to be pretty. So there's a number of things that we can be doing uh, that are you know, I think future looking and visionary. And if you imagine all these carbon that we have in the atmosphere, imagine that it's sitting in a bathtub and we have to deal with it. Well, we have to do two things. We have to turn off the tap and that means we have to cut emissions and focus on renewable energy. And then we have to empty the tub. And that's where nature solutions come come in. You know, keeping the ocean alive is a great way of maintaining its ability to decarbonize the atmosphere. We're learning that whales are great allies in this process. You know, we didn't know until recently. How are whales our allies here? Well, whales, of course, we almost exterminated many species of whales during the whaling years, and they just started coming back. And now we're learning that when whales dive deep, you know, a mile 
mile and a half into the bottom of the ocean to feed, they're eating krill. And krill is, of course, dependent on plankton. But whales are bringing all those minerals and very rich uh, nutrients up to the surface of the ocean where they poop. And that poop becomes fertilizer for plankton. And plankton, of course, is like a miniature rainforest in the surface of the ocean that is you know, through photosynthesis, absorbing carbon and exhaling oxygen. We need whales to fertilize plankton. And it's invisible. We don't get to see it, you know. And it's not a matter of faith. As scientists, we know that this is exactly how it happens. And the people that are working on keeping whales alive are telling us that we need about 100 times more whales than we have today. Uh, because we're, the plankton is disappearing as the water gets warmer, as it absorbs more carbon dioxide, it also becomes more acidic. Water that's acidic is not supportive of life. And so plankton can survive. I mean, it's just these things that are difficult to fathom, but they're happening. So, yeah, we need to keep whales alive. Keep whales alive. And it sounds like we need we need to figure out how to get whales to have even more whales. Well, we had, you know, we, we killed <laughs> exactly. around. Well, let's start, let's start by not we killing We killed them. around 400,000 blue whales, you know, the largest animal ever to exist on this planet. And now they've recovered to a point of 10,000. They're still down 99.5%. And you think that in Iceland right now, this summer, they continue the whaling of fin whales, which are the second largest whale in the world. Uh, there's one guy who found a loophole in the in the even the president's against it. One, one company, company, one, one guy is killing probably 50, 60 uh, fin whales this summer. One hundred and twenty-two. Nobody this can year. really eat it. There's so much mercury in the meat; it's kind of toxic. It's kind of gross. So this nobody is just will. like a cultural tradition. Yeah, basically. just somebody exercising his right to go out and and kill, you know, a sentient being that's eighty feet long. He calls it a fishery. You know, it, well, whales are not fish, <laughs> and. Anyway, it's those kinds of loopholes that you just scratch your head and you you think about the value of a single whale. There's a, a scientist, he's an economist with the International Monetary Fund that just came up with a number of $3 million is the value of that asset to any economy, a whale that's helping us decarbonize. Because that we don't have to build a machine to absorb carbon. It's already out there in the ocean. All we have to do is keep it alive. But today, no country in its PNL has whales as an asset. And that is a problem because if they were, you know, you would think very carefully about allowing somebody to kill 122 whales when every whale is worth $3 million. The challenge here feels overwhelming. Uh, and it is, it's our entire planet, right? And so, in many cases, uh, people who would be uh, wanting to help will throw their hands up in the air because it's just, it's too much and it's too scary. And let me go on TikTok and look at something happier that makes me happier. Um, what do you tell people about what they can do, uh, either through organizations, through donations, through volunteering, et cetera, uh, for a task that seems as overwhelming as saving our planet? Well, you know, the, the, the good news is that there are solutions and that scientists know how to fix the problem. And they actually have told us. Um, maybe two, three years ago, Paul and I came upon a scientific paper by a scientist called Dr. Carlos Duarte. And he and 20 other scientists came up with a, a plan, a roadmap for rebuilding marine life in a single generation. So by the time I'm a little old lady, if we do these six things that they recommend, you know, we could see a thriving living planet. So the six things are we need to create more marine protected areas. And now the world has a mandate to protect at least 30% of their land and water by 2030. So a lot of countries are racing to find the places that should be protected in their territorial areas. The second is we have to protect species. And 
you know, things like whaling and keeping dolphins in captivity need to become a thing of the past. We also need to exercise federal legislation to protect sharks and sea turtles and all of these animals. The third one is that we have to figure out the the pollution problem. You know, we have to stop pollution from entering the ocean. And it's not just plastic. Carbon dioxide is a pollutant. And, you know, everything from fossil fuels to sediments to fertilizer, all of that stuff, we need to figure it out. The fourth one is we need to rethink how we catch protein from the ocean. We cannot continue carrying out industrial fishing as we were before we knew how important biomass is to the ocean ecosystem. The fifth one is we have to restore the ecosystems that have been damaged, coral reefs. We need to put real investment into restoring mangroves and seagrass beds. And the final is we have to stop ignoring the ocean. You know, it's barely mentioned in the United Nations General Assembly. The ocean is one quarter of the solution. So we have to cast it as a solution to climate change. And so that's what Sea Legacy does. You know, that's our framework of reference for the kinds of stories we tell. And the biggest problem that the ocean has, that the environment has, is a lack of funding. So, um, Paul, do no, you want to talk a little tell, bit about... I'm just going to help Moshe do this interview, um, just because I know you so well. Um, <laughs> Moshe, you're doing a great job. Uh, honey, you know, but tell, tell them about you know, your super philanthropist. I mean, I think that we need a movement is the only thing we... The only the power of the people are greater than the people in power. And we need to create a movement and we need people to become... You know, you said one billion people giving a dollar or more a month. Imagine billions of dollars going into ocean conservation um, to create the world's first major super philanthropist. Um, When you think in the United States that $500 billion are given every year to charity, well, 33% of that goes to religion, uh, 15% goes to education, 11% to arts and entertainment, and go down the list. And at the very bottom, honey, tell them about the 1.8%. goes to the environment. So the pyramid is inverted. Wait, so less than 2% of all philanthropy in the U.S. goes towards the environment. That's correct. Okay. Environmental causes. That includes climate change, oceans, biodiversity, extinction, all of that. So I'm not saying don't give to religion. Yeah, I'm saying let's flip the pyramid and let's rethink our charitable giving for the next 10 years to really be biased towards environmental restoration. Because our... Global survival depends on it. And Americans, we are the most philanthropic people on the planet. Um, And at the same time, you know, we are encouraging a lot of corporations and businesses to think about investments in real conservation and real environmental restoration, not just lip service and greenwashing. And I think it can be done, Moshe. I don't think it's all lost. It's, It's massive, but there's a lot of innovation happening. And everywhere we go, we meet thousands of people that are doing their part innovating, advocating, lobbying, and donating. Beyond donation, are there other practical things that people, I mean, we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast who are raising children, Um, you know, and we're pretty diverse here. We got people around the world listening. Majority are probably Americans. Um, What else in terms of practical things beyond writing a check uh, are are things that they can be doing that you see having an impact? I think that, you know, every time you pull out a visa, every time you order in a restaurant, every time, you know, every action you take, if you factor in our planet in that cycle, we think about, is this good for my health? Is this good for my kids? Is this good for my wallet? Is this good for my bank account? Is this good for my love life? You know, ask yourself, is this good for the planet? You know, and then I have friends who are like, hey, Paul, I'm really on the fence about having a fourth kid. 
You know, like we have three. We don't really know if we need a fourth, but we're, you know, Susie needs a playmate. I'm like, if you factor in the planet, you're not going to have the fourth kid when you look at the amount. And the, and the other thing is just be brave. Be brave enough to start becoming educated. Quit turning a blind eye to all the issues on this planet. Become educated. Then you factor that into your day-to-day life, your routine, where you're going to go on holidays, how you're going to get there, um, what you're going to eat, what you're going to buy, what you're going to order in a restaurant. And then all of a sudden, your kids will grow up and they'll be at school and they'll say, wait a minute, my parents really are against single-use plastic. My school is full of plastic. Maybe I'm going to go talk to the principal about having a plastic-free school. Whatever it is, once you start going down that path, you take that one small first action, or it could be joining the tide with Sea Legacy, following the work we're doing. And that's a really low entry point into seeing all the actions that we're taking, all the storytelling that we're doing. And what I love about the work we do at Sea Legacy is that there are 5,000 ocean conservations alone in the United States. And it's mostly small mom, and pa people with no funding, barely, they can't even pull a salary, they can't barely survive. You know, so we amplify the work of other people doing who are out there doing great work. So, you know, just take that first action to get involved, whether that's giving a dollar, that whether that's re- Googling the planet instead of being on TikTok for six hours. And, a day. and, and what about what about 100 for the ocean? So we recognizing that there's this massive uh, gap in funding. Think about this for a second, Moshe. The United Nations are telling us that in order to keep our oceans alive, we need an investment annually of $174 billion. And that's not just donations for conservation. That's infrastructure. That is building blue economies. At the moment, there's only $25 billion in investments for the ocean. So we have $150 billion that need to come from somewhere. As photographers, we are making a contribution by donating. Um, we, we invited 100 of our friends to donate a print each, and we're raising. We're trying to raise money for ocean conservation. So if you go to www.100fortheocean.com, you can buy a beautiful print. Think about Teacher Appreciation Day. Think about your Christmas gifts coming up. Go and buy a bunch of prints. All that money is going to go to ocean conservation, and you're going to get a beautiful thing in return. I'm talking to two award-winning uh, photographers here, and I just want—I I wanted to talk a bit about what you guys do, your profession, a bit, because I find it so fascinating. Uh, if we go to your Instagram accounts, we see very up-close encounters with bears, wolves, whales—amazing, uh, amazing pictures. Paul, I saw recently you were quoted as saying, "The animals dictate the encounter." Explain how you approach being in these habitats, approaching these creatures, uh, and uh, keeping your calm to capture these amazing images. Yeah, absolutely, Moshe. You know, it's it's when you spend as much time in nature as we do, you know, when I've seen 3,000 polar bears in the wild, uh, 2,000 grizzly bears, you know, this is my happy place. This is where I'm at peace. This is where I do my best work. And, you know, when you're around animals this much, you 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 know very quickly that the best work that you're going to do, the most beautiful, powerful, evocative storytelling imagery that you're going to make, is when an animal is completely relaxed around you. And so, and, and you know, to you know, uh, the great Robert Kappa, the war photographer, said, if your pictures aren't good enough, then you're not close enough. And that can be tricky with a grizzly bear or a polar bear. And you know, but if you are relaxed around these animals, if you are, and I'm truly naturally relaxed around these animals. Then all of a sudden, if you can have a grizzly bear six feet away from you, 
acting very naturally and very, and you can be photographing that animal on a wide angle lens. I mean, in all 35 years of filming and being around bears, I've never had a scary encounter. You know, the only time I, people say, tell me something really scary that's happened to you. It was going into the New York Metro subway station for the first time by myself, absolutely petrified. I had my wallet <laughs> in my front pocket. I went down the stairs like I was going into battle. Some guy saw the fear in my eyes and actually attacked me at five o'clock at the end of a day. And I was with these, these three women from National Geographic who actually defended me, punched their card and pushed me through the gate, yelled at this guy. Um, and it was just like, but I think the guy saw the fear in my eyes and, and it just triggered a, re, uh, an aggressive response. And, you know, I don't have that fear in my eyes when I'm around wildlife and nature, I have a feeling of calm. And, and so when you can let an animal behave its natural self around you, and if it wants to get close to you, then it's a beautiful thing. And you just sit there as a fly on the wall and you document the magic and then you share that with the world. And then to go back to your other question about social media, you know, if we just, just the way we've talked, we've been pretty negative on this podcast more than normal, but I appreciate the opportunity just to speak about the state of our planet. It's, it's an honest truth that we have to talk about. And I think, but on social media, if we just put up negative, negative, negative every day, people are going to get horrified and sad and depressed and not follow along. Unfollow. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas Christina talks about, you know, Martin Luther King, that he doesn't start off with like, I have a nightmare and we're all doomed. It's like, I have a dream. But this is what we have to go through to, you know, so you get that narrative arc. And it's the same with social media that you have to put up the beautiful, the interesting, the gorgeous, the educational, the entertaining. And then once you have this base trusting you and following you and coming along on a journey with you, then you can punch them in the head with something really horrific and awful. You remind them that it's not, it's all, not well. all well with the world, but then they're, they're, they're ready for it. You know, they're, they're like, okay, so I like you, I trust you. And now you have me as one of your disciples or one of your followers or one of your, you know, supporters. And then you offer the solutions. Yeah. Then you say, you know, together we could be funding uh, the people that are protecting whales and they have the technology, they have the science, they know how to protect these whales. They just need our funding and our support. Or we can be uh, supporting the people that are replanting corals around the world. They already know how to do it. All they need is money to keep doing it. And see Legacy, that's what we do. Paul, a couple notes as a New Yorker here. Never make eye contact on the subway. Um, <laughs> and I should say, by the way, I've lived for 12, uh, 14 years now. Never been attacked, so I just want to make a pitch to New York. It's not as bad as and I, I and I, I'm sorry that that was your first experience in the New York City subway. I've had a thousand beautiful ones since. So yes, it, okay, it, it, all right. And, and it was just my first, and it was just horrific. But I was trembling. I was so scared. Some guy yelled, "Hey, playing. you!" And I stared up, and I stared him right in the eye. And he just mm. probably was, and he looked at me, and he walked towards me, and I started to tremble. And you know, <laughs> my takeaway from all of that is. Your scariest encounters have been with human beings and not with animals. Exactly. Despite being up close with animals that typically would uh, <laughs> would create some fear. Yeah. Mitty, talk to me about uh, how you approach getting up close with some of the largest creatures on Earth. You know, I just love animals. I, I'm just so mesmerized by by what they do and what they look like. And I have this curiosity about their daily lives. You know, where do they go? What do they know? When you see a sea turtle, uh, we photographed uh, some <laughs> loggerhead sea turtles in the Azores and off the coast of Portugal. The water is so cold. And you're like, what the hell are they doing here? And then you look at the tags, at the scientific tags on their fins, and you realize they were born in Florida. And somehow they swam 4,000 miles to the coast of the North Atlantic. And one day 
they will make a U-turn and they will return to the same beach where they were born. How do they know that? You know, to me, that's all fascinating. How do sperm whales dive to the pitch black of the ocean depth and find giant squid? And then you see them and they come up and they have these tentacles dangling out of their mouth. You know, if you came face to face with a giant squid that size, you'd be holy moly. And these whales are routinely diving to places that humans have never been to, you know, as divers, because we can't. Um, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. So when I'm in the water, I try not to be scared and I try not to behave like a prey because then, you know, predators sense. I mean, it's just like a big dog, right? If you run away, the dog will chase you. So, so you try to keep your cool and you try to keep your curiosity and calm energy. And, you know, most of the time you're pleasantly surprised. Animals are always sensitive. They're very, very intelligent. They're very social. They're very, even sharks, you know, how many shark deaths are there on humans a year? And there's, you know, billions of people in the Five. hour, billions of hours that, that people are in the ocean every year. And, you know, oh, I, I, I spent a lot of years in network news, Paul, and we make sure to cover the hell out of all five of them. Absolutely. And you pump them over and over and over. That's that that fear sells, right? But the only emotion greater than fear. More is hope. people are killed by cows. Yeah. You two are some of the few people left who will sit in the same place for hours observing what's going months. on. Or sorry, more than hours, months. Uh to, to be able to capture that perfect picture. Um and we live in an era where, you know. Something takes more than a few seconds. You're looking down at your phone. You're moving on. You know, people get distracted, etc. I'm curious about just attention spans. Uh, and and it, you know, I imagine you are mentors to the next generation of photographers who are growing up in this era. Talk to me about the importance of of just taking a moment uh, and taking it in. Paul, I I saw your quote as saying that when you take people to Antarctica, the first thing you tell them is to put their cameras down and just observe. Right. Um, the importance of observing things around you, patience, etc. Where where things stand in 2023 in an era where no one can. I mean, there's, there's two worlds. I mean, I, I always say I have ADD and I've never been clinically diagnosed, but I have we have text, signal, WhatsApp, DM, you know, like we have bing, bing, bing. Our phones are going all day long. And then I, I look down at my computer. I have 12,000 unopened emails. You know, I've got 14 emails that are half written going into my drafts. It's a crazy world, but you put me in nature. And all of a sudden, it's it's a form of nature bathing where you just stop and you start to breathe these longer, slower breaths. You start to look around. You start to see the eagles and the frogs and the fish and the you know you just start to see this whole connected ecosystem in front of you, and you start to relax. To sit by a river full of salmon with ravens and eagles, and and you're waiting for a spirit bear to come out of the rainforest. You know this rare white bear that lives here in these forests. Um, you know, you, to sit there for a month and not see anything, it's you're the happiest, most blissful you've ever been waiting for this bear. And when it finally emerges, it's it's something so beautiful that you could never have imagined it. And it's it's just a very calming, beautiful place to be. And we have become quite disconnected from nature. I mean, I was in Hawaii and there was a family all on their devices sitting on a beach and right in front of them was a humpback whale that was breaching. And they didn't, it was just out of sight of, 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 of a hearing sound. So maybe half a mile offshore. I bet you they were Googling where to go see whales, you know, like, <laughs> like put down your phone and look up and look around you and take it all in. I mean, my favorite thing, like I'm going this weekend to turn my phone off for a full week 
And I don't care if I miss business. I don't care if I miss important phone calls. I don't care. I need to disconnect and reconnect with nature. If you know, and that's really the one place that I feel grounded. And that's where I go find hope and inspiration to keep moving on this on this this uh, path that we're on. You know, there's something really interesting when you when you get in the water, whether you're scuba diving or free diving, is that your breathing really changes. Uh, last week, we had a guest here in our house, one of our board members. She's deep into trans- transcendental meditation, and she was telling us about it. And it's no different, you know, focusing on your breath and spending 10 minutes just, you know, clearing your mind. It's what it, what we do in the water. But what ends up happening is it, it gives you the ability to be present, to calm your mind and be present in conversations, to really listen to what people are telling you and to come up with answers that are not selfish and that are not self-serving. And, you know, that's a real superpower that humans have to be present with other humans. And we're losing that because of our devices. Paul and I marvel, you know, we go to these events and you meet somebody and they spend 30 minutes telling you all about themselves. They don't ask you a single question about you. We are losing the art of conversation. You know, how are you doing? Tell me about you. It's such a simple thing that builds bridges of empathy and understanding between humans. I mean, imagine a family, the kids come home from school, the parents come home from work, they've been busy all day. Imagine if they all just put down their devices instead of saying, look at this, I saw this on the video today. Look at TikTok, look what Jimmy said. Look at, look at, look at, look at. Imagine if they put their phones all away. They did 10 minutes of breathing, just very sort of calming, meditative breathing, clearing their minds, and then all started to ask questions to one another about, what did you learn at school today? How was your day at work? Imagine the feeling. I feel like a sense of calm where we've just gone down this dangerous rabbit hole of becoming disconnected from the world, and we're getting more and more disconnected. So to get people to care about their planet, our planet and our place in this world, we really have to start opening up our hearts and our souls and and, uh, our minds to to personal growth as well as, and I just read a really powerful book called The Untethered Soul. When I just, I just sailed across the South Pacific for a month. I didn't have a drink. I worked out every day. Uh, we didn't have our devices on, you know, but to, and then to start reading books again. I see all these books behind you, you know, the power of reading. That's where Sapiens on the wall. I see that's a great one. Um, you know, to, to see, you know, to start reading again and just, it's amazing when you when you you fall into that, but you don't realize how far we've gone away from that. But uh, it's there waiting for us. You can make a decision immediately just to change your life. And uh, as soon as you become curious and you start asking the right questions and you start thinking about how we're all related on this planet, um, great things, great things. Yeah, I was doing an interview earlier this week with a guy named Carlos Whitaker who wrote a great book called How to Human about connecting with people again and engaging people in basic conversation and finding out that there are human beings behind the comments on social media and that we actually have much more common. How the human, I like that. At the same time, making the pitch for technology here, we've never lived in an era where everyone has a camera in their pocket. And as photographers, I'd love your perspective on that. The fact that several billion people on earth have the ability to take unlimited, effectively unlimited photos on a daily basis. You know what it's done, Moshe? It's, um, it's really given us uh, visual literacy. And for me, because I started my career as a conservationist first and as a scientist writing about conservation first, and realized that people don't really like to read science. They don't even like to hear about it because processing numbers and data is not our common language. 
But photographs, you know, you really lower the price of entry because we all have that visual literacy. And today, every one of us carries a device on our in our pockets that makes us experts. So photography becomes a great way of inviting people into the conversation. We love wondering, you know, how did the photographer make that image? And you, you start asking questions. Were you scared? Were you hungry? Were you uh, cold? You know, whatever it was, it's the first step in human dialogue in how to human. And you think about the power of a photograph, you know, creating real change. You think about, you know, how controversial the Vietnam War was, for example, you know, and it's all the politics and the the protests. But it's, you know, really, when it comes down to it, it's, it's a, a young girl running down the street burning from napalm that right. you see this image and it grabs you by the heart and punches you in the head. And you're just like, you know, it's it's the power of that. Our starving polar bear had over two billion views around the world when we put out that video that is one quarter of the planet saw that video and you know these are the images that really that take on a life of their own that live on forever that speak to the world that are crucial in creating a movement and so that's what we're always trying to do is make that connection to a global audience using the power of visual storytelling and um you know there's so much work ahead of us because we're we're we have a lot of work to do do you think um there's a limited impact in terms of photo is there a way to get more people to be able to see this in person. And the concept for years has been zoos, right? Or SeaWorld. It's like, oh, we'll bring the animals to the people and that should help with this process. And I, I, I'd i love your perspective as people who see animals in the wild, that, that challenge, that debate of, we want people to be able to see the beauty of these creatures, but we can't take 9 billion people to the Arctic with us. It's a very powerful question. And it's one that we struggle with a lot because... You know, when we were filming orcas in Norway in the in 2011, 12, 13, a big story for National Geographic. And ultimately, through the efforts of a group of us and under the guidance of Sea Legacy, we were able to ban big oil from drilling in the Lofoten region of Norway by using the power of storytelling, mostly using the charismatic species of orcas, uh, that there's 2,000 orcas that are feeding on herring every year. So we had this great conservation win. But when we were doing the filmmaking and the storytelling, it was just us and BBC. Uh, National Geographic and BBC out there, a couple of other little tourist boats looking at the whales, but nobody was getting in the water. And all of a sudden now there's 150 boats. And because of all this publicity that BBC and Nat Geo put out there, now there's, you know, a thousand people there. Now the whales are being harassed. Now the whales can hardly feed. So it's like, it's a really, if there had been policy in place before we did this big campaign. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, the orcas are fine. They're there feeding. It's better than having oil, an oil spill or drilling or seismic exploration. But still, you know, there's just like, there's just a lot of people on this planet, 8 billion of us. And and I recommend, um, I recommend a documentary that Paul and I just watched called The Last Tourist, because it's real, a real education on how our tourism inclinations can also be very destructive. And I really think, you know, at the end, it, it has a very positive ending because you can learn to be a better tourist. As for zoos and aquariums, uh, it's very difficult to make blanket statements. Uh, you know, I grew up going to the zoo in Mexico City. And if I had not been able to see animals, you know, I don't know that I would have pursued this career with so much passion. And when you say, oh, we cannot, we cannot allow any animals to be in captivity, what you're saying really is we cannot rehabilitate animals that are, you know, distressed in the wild and need a place to go. Uh, you know, th this happened here at the Vancouver Aquarium where the public demanded no more marine mammals in captivity. And as a result, they couldn't rescue uh, sea lions and porpoises that were in distress anymore. 
So, you know, there's a place for captivity when it's compassionate and when it has a rehabilitation purpose. We should not be kidnapping animals from the wild for public entertainment. That's a different thing. And definitely animals like orcas do not belong in captivity. It's cruel and inhumane. So we'll end here. We were were a little dark in the beginning, and then we started to bring out the light. Um, And this has been an incredible conversation. There's so much more to talk to both of you about. But I'll end here with what gives you hope um, as you've been engaged in these careers as photographers, as conservationists, uh, and you make these trips around the world, especially as you see some of the impact of what's happening on the wildlife. What continues to give you reason uh, for hope that we can turn the corner here? You know, Moshe, I, I think the fact that we're having this conversation, that the fact that perhaps more than ever, um, because, you know, you have an incredibly intelligent, educated audience, you yourself are a very aware, awoke, you know, human being and, and ask great questions. I feel that we can have this sort of gloves off, open conversation. We can rattle around in a little bit of negativity. We can talk about truths. We can talk about fears. We can also talk about hope. And I think that that gives me hope that we have an ability with someone like you in today's day and age using your social media channel, your your channels to speak to a great audience about about something like this. And I think that's that's a huge like we wouldn't 20 years ago, we wouldn't even have had considered having a conversation with this. You would have lost your entire base and all your following and nobody would have respected you and would have called you fake news or whatever. It is. Oh, um, some still do, Paul. Don't worry. Yeah. Why are you fear mongering on the podcast? Right. So let's fear monger. Let's like, let's just talk about it. And, and that gives me hope that we're having this, that this next generation coming up is really, and we're seeing a lot of people, great leaders, you know, brilliant minds taken, taken on important issues. And, and um, yeah. What about you, Mitty? You know, I, I want to close by talking a little bit about the incredibly hopeful power of storytelling, because until recently, it was very difficult to raise money to tell stories. They were deemed just as entertainment. But more and more, we are realizing that storytelling is the best tool that we have to convene people around the table to create a common vision and to bring people to a common point of view. And we just did that in the Bahamas. We had been there um Uh, telling the story of shark protection in the Bahamas, and then uh, Dorian hit. And we went back to the Bahamas to tell the story of what happens to countries that have no input into the, you know, carbon emission game, you know, but they're shouldering the burden of these hurricanes year after year after year. And then COVID hit. And Paul and I had just bought our boat, the Sea Legacy One, and we headed to the Bahamas just because there was nobody there. But we could see the economic impact of no tourism, right? I mean, 90% of their income is tourism, and all of a sudden there's no money coming in. So they decided, uh, the Bahamas, that they were going to start doing oil exploration. And while we were there, the Stena Ice Max, you know, this oil exploration ship from the UK came and they started digging in the bottom of the ocean. And I remember sitting in our boat thinking, you know, how do we stop this? What can we do about this? And then one day we see this little boat coming from across the Gulf Stream. And it's an American scientist, Dr. Austin Gallagher with Beneath the Waves is one of our partner organizations. And he comes on board and he says, you know, Christina, I've been putting cameras on the fins of these tiger sharks. And when I look at the footage, I can see that they're swimming thousands of kilometers over seagrass meadows. So we started asking questions. How big is the seagrass meadow? How much carbon does it sequester? And Austin and his team discovered the largest seagrass meadow 
on the planet. It's 92,000 square kilometers. And the carbon that is sequestering is equivalent to 10% of global emissions. It's a massive discovery, one that can change a lot of things. Using the power of storytelling, Paul and I were able to bring people around the table from the government of the Bahamas, from the business community in the Bahamas, to build a blue carbon marketplace that is going to generate more money than all the oil that they could have extracted, you know, and it's really giving them an opportunity for a blue economy. There are solutions like that happening everywhere. And storytelling is what allows us to share this news with the world so that we all can keep the hope. It's a wonderful note to go out on. Mitty, thank you for your storytelling. Paul, thank you for your storytelling. Paul, good luck with the uh, tech detox. We'll see you on the other side. Uh, but with that 12,000 email inbox, I don't have high hopes of getting my email answer in the future. <laughs> Thanks, folks. Appreciate it. All right. I want to thank Paul and Mitty again for that incredible conversation. Educational, interesting, inspirational. You can follow them over on their Instagram accounts. We'll link to them in the show notes, as well as over at clegacy.org, where you can follow all of their conservation uh, programming content uh, and what's next on that front. All right. As we conclude here, just want to put out a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium. You would have had early access to this podcast. There's also exclusive content over on our members only podcast feed and private Instagram account. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism. The added plus is that extra content. You can get access to Mo News Premium for just $7 a month. Right now, we actually have a special deal for the annual package. Two free months, just $70 a year for all the extra content, as well as just knowing you're supporting what we're doing here at Mo News, sustaining what we're doing and growing what we're doing on the podcast, the newsletter, the Instagram account, and all the other platforms. There's also, by the way, a lifetime subscription option. You can check out all of those options right now at mo.news slash premium. Again, that is mo.news slash premium. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. Thank you.